Good evening. Why don't you guys turn uh, in your Bibles to Jeremiah chapter 15. We live in the same house, but we, the songs she picked were not meant to go along with my study by us. We didn't collude or anything. So, But that last song truly is, I think, the heart cry uh, of a people who want to be like Jeremiah, as we read here in um, chapter 15 and 16, is to come to the end of our days that the Lord has allotted for us to be able to say, or to hear the Lord say to us, well done. Um, and uh, for each of us, we have appointments in life that the Lord has given to us. Uh, if you're a husband, it's in that marriage towards your wife. And for a wife, towards your husband. Uh, if you have children, it's towards your children as caregiver, as uh guiding them spiritually. Um, All of us here in the church, it's to one another as uh, members of one body, stones that are built up upon one another, supporting each other. Uh, In your workplace, uh, to be a, a faithful and good employee, representing the Lord uh, in your school, in uh, your neighborhood. The Lord has appointed things for each and every one of us to be faithful in. And, uh, see, I'm getting emotional. I haven't even started the study. (laughs) But uh, it was just, uh, you know, the Lord has all of these things for us and is calling each and every one of us to be faithful to him. He's given us the grace, if we've placed our faith in him, that deals with the two things we can't deal with ourselves, which is sin and death. Those were dealt with on the cross. Um, Nothing else, no one else can deal with that, only the Lord, and he's done it for us. And everything else then uh, is if we're walking with him, he, he handles all of those things for us. Doesn't mean our lives will be easy. That's what we see with Jeremiah. But the Lord gives us the great grace and strength to walk with him if we remain faithful to him. And then we can trust and know that when we do stand before him, we'll hear those words, well done, good and faithful servant, enter into your rest. So let's look at... Uh, Jeremiah 15, I'll read the first few verses and then we'll pray here. Uh, Then the Lord said to me, even if Moses and Samuel stood before me, my mind would not be favorable toward this people. Cast them out of my sight and let them go forth. And it shall be if they say to you, where should we go? Then you shall tell them, thus says the Lord, such as for death to death. Such as are for the sword to the sword, and such as are for the famine to the famine, and such as are for the captivity to the captivity. And I will appoint over them four forms of destruction, says the Lord, the sword to slay, the dogs to drag, the birds of the heavens and the beasts of the earth to devour and destroy. I will hand them over to trouble. To all kingdoms of the earth because of Manasseh, the son of Hezekiah, king of Judah, for what he did in Jerusalem. Let's pray. Lord, I do pray as we look at these two chapters, uh, 15 and 16 here, Lord, uh, they deal with some very heavy things. And we see uh, even your servant Jeremiah becoming discouraged in his ministry, Lord, um, and who can blame him? But, Lord, we, we know, based on what your word tells us, that it's living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword to divide soul and spirit, uh, to discern truth in our hearts, to show us the things in our lives that uh, we need to do or not do, Lord. And I pray that as we look at these things, that we would be encouraged to stand strong in our faith before you. 
that we would be encouraged to remain faithful and to endure in you, even when times are hard and tough. And Lord, I pray that you would speak to us tonight as we look at these things in your name. Amen. So we, of course, have been following here with Jeremiah the Lord's judgment on Judah and Jerusalem. They had uh, thought themselves to be favorable before the Lord because they still had the temple. They had the reforms of Josiah. They had the uh, worship of Yahweh in the temple, though they continued to have other idols and altars in the temple as well. They were still in the promised land that God had given to them. So they thought that they had favor before him. But here the Lord says, even if Moses and Samuel stood before me, my mind would not be favorable towards this people. They had everything wrong. And Jeremiah had been telling them that the Lord through Jeremiah had been telling them that over and over and over again. And we see truly uh, the grace and long suffering of the Lord. It could have been the Lord just judged them. He had given them the covenant with Moses uh, and, and what we've seen in Deuteronomy and, and how the Lord says, if you depart from me, I'm going to cause all of these things to happen to you. He could have said, they've done it. I'm done. Cut off. It's it. But instead, over and over, we've seen he sends the prophets to warn them, to rebuke them, to give them warnings that judgment is coming. But here we've seen the Lord says they've gotten to the point almost like Pharaoh, where the Lord sent plague after plague in Egypt to warn Pharaoh, let my people go. And every time Pharaoh would resist and then he would let the people go or say he would let the people go, but then he'd harden his heart again. And that's the same thing we see with Judah and Jerusalem. The Lord sends prophets. He sends the kings that are good, that try to clean up the land and to clear out the idols and these altars and the high places and do these things. And the people begin to kind of follow this, but then they harden their hearts and go right back. And the Lord, in essence, is saying, you've hardened your heart towards me. Judgment's coming now, and there's nothing that's going to stop it. It's time. Um, and this is a difficult thing. Moses and Samuel. Now, Moses, if you've read through uh, uh, Exodus and Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, you see that Moses was a great intercessor, meaning he, he prayed before the Lord on behalf of his people. You know, they would grumble, they would complain, they, they would uh, rebel against the Lord, and Moses would intercede on their behalf. And many times the Lord would relent from his judgments on his people because of Moses standing before him and praying for them. Samuel, as well, he called Israel to return to the Lord in his days uh, when they would go into captivity with the Philistines or in bondage with the Philistines. And Samuel would, would intercede on their behalf and he would pray before the Lord and the Lord would deliver the people of Israel. He would answer Samuel. Uh, and yet the Lord says, even if these two, these holy men, these righteous men to whom I listened, if they were here pleading before me, my mind wouldn't change. It would stay the same. It would not be favorable towards this people. In Psalm 99.6, the psalmist, he groups these two men together, and he says that they called upon the Lord and he answered them. Uh, and uh, why don't you turn there real quick, actually. Let's look at it. Psalm 99. We'll just start in verse 1. We'll just read it real quick. The Lord reigns. Let the peoples tremble. He dwells between the cherubim on the Ark of the Covenant, the Holy of Holies there. Uh, let the earth be moved. The Lord is great in Zion. He is high above all the peoples. Let them praise your great and awesome name. He is holy. The king's strength also loves justice. You have established equity. You have executed justice and righteousness in Jacob. Exalt the Lord our God and worship at his footstool. He is holy. Moses and Aaron were among his priests and Samuel was among those who called upon his name. 
They called upon the Lord, and he answered them. He spoke to them in the cloudy pillar. They, here's the obedience part, kept his testimonies and the ordinances he gave them. You answered them, O Lord, our, our God. You were to them El Nasa, God who forgives. Though you took vengeance on their deeds. Isn't that interesting? He's the God who forgives, and yet there's still judgment. In verse 9, it says, Exalt the Lord our God and worship at his holy hill, for the Lord our God is holy. So even if these two men to whom the Lord listened and he answered them, even if they stood before him, he wouldn't answer them. Because he is the God who forgives, but he's also the God who takes vengeance on the deeds of those who do not repent. And that's what we see here. Go back to Jeremiah 15. He says, cast them out of my sight and let them go forth. They were going to be cast out of the land. Verse 2, it shall be, uh, if they say to you, where should we go? Then you shall tell them, thus says the Lord, such as for death to death. Uh, there are Bible commentators that believe that's speaking of a, a disease or pestilence. Such as are for the sword to the sword. We know the Babylonians were coming and were going to slay many. Such as are for the famine to the famine. They were going to besiege Jerusalem and there would be a shortage of food because of that siege and that war. And we, as we've already seen, the land was dying out and not producing fruit because of their unfaithfulness. And those who survived those things, the death, the sword, and the famine, the remainder would be taken into captivity. So it was judgment. There was going to be nothing left. No one left there. And even those who had died, who had fallen in death, the Lord says there's going to be over them four forms of destruction. The sword to slay, the dogs to drag, the birds of the heavens, and the beasts of the earth to devour and destroy. For the Jews, uh, there was nothing worse for them in death than to just have their bodies laid out before destruction and to be eaten by dogs and, and birds and to not be buried. We see that with Joseph and, and his bones and how he had asked for his bones to be brought back to the promised land after he had died in Egypt. Uh, so even in death, there would be a judgment over them. He says, I will hand them over to trouble to all kingdoms of the earth because of Manasseh, the son of Hezekiah, king of Judah, for what he did in Jerusalem. Uh, these same destructions, the, the dogs to drag and the birds of heaven uh, to devour and destroy, we see actually the Lord call out these sort of uh, judgments upon wicked uh, kings in the past. Jeroboam, uh, he was the one to whom the Lord gave uh, the northern tribes of Israel to after the kingdom left Solomon's family. Um, and uh, when it split between Judah in the south and the rest of the tribes in the north, uh, Jeroboam was king there. And he was jealous of his people's devotion to the Lord in Jerusalem. And so he said, I'm going to build an altar in Bethel. And in Bethel, he created uh, some golden calves, just like the people did in the wilderness. And he caused the people in Israel to apostatize against the Lord, to keep them from going and worshiping him in Jerusalem. And the Lord says that for the house of Jeroboam, the dogs would drag them out and the birds of heaven would devour them. Uh, Baasha, uh, he was another king. And he provoked the children of Israel to idolatry just like Jeroboam. And the Lord gave him the same and his household the same uh, curse and judgment. And then the last one we see is Ahab. You guys know of Ahab. Ahab was in the time of Elijah the Tishbite uh, in Israel. And uh, in 1 Kings 16, 33, it says, Ahab did more to provoke the Lord God of Israel to anger than all of the kings of Israel who were before him. And he had the same form of destruction called upon him, the dogs to drag and the birds of the heavens to devour. And we see this is a heavy, heavy curse. 
What's interesting, too, is that we see that the children of Judah and Jerusalem had seen these destructions come upon Israel before them for Israel's apostasy. And even though they had that negative example, there was, again, no turning, no repentance from the Lord or to the Lord. And uh, there was destruction coming for them. We see here it says, because of Manasseh, the son of Hezekiah. Hezekiah had repented before the Lord of his sin. It says he was a good king before the Lord. He had personal revival. He called on the people to repent as well. But there really was no true revival, only uh, a sort of reform. And the proof of that is after his son Manasseh comes along, he entices the people away from the Lord again. And even though he's the one who seduced them, as Second Kings says, he seduced them to do more evil than the nations whom the Lord had destroyed uh, before the children of Israel. Even though he had seduced them, yet their hearts still followed afterwards. And when Manasseh was long gone, those things continued to take place in Judah and in Jerusalem. Matthew 15, 14, it says, if the blind leads the blind, both will fall into a ditch. Many times people will criticize leaders for how they've led the people astray. And there's, there's good and right criticism against leaders in the church who are teaching false doctrine, leaders in nations who are doing wicked and evil things. But if the people follow right along, the responsibility is still on them as well, especially in the church. Because in the church, we are all a kingdom of uh, priests before the Lord. He's given each and every one of us his spirit to have uh, discernment and wisdom and his word to teach us what is right and what is wrong. To give us the light by which we judge everything that claims itself to be spiritual truth. So if there is a following into the seduction it's the blind leading the blind, and they both fall into the ditch, Jesus says. So we see that here with Manasseh. He led them astray, and yet it continued on. Even in the times, what we looked at before here, of Josiah who came later. Josiah had great reform. The, the word of God was found again in the temple. And he had this great uh, ref reformation taking place where the people came and they, they kept the, the Passover and they, they made these vows before the Lord. But again, it didn't stick. It wasn't a heart change for them. It was just all on the outward. And, and in fact, it had made it harder for them because they thought that they were favorable before the Lord because of these things. And the, yet the Lord said, my mind's not favorable towards you. And so he says, verse 5, for, I, for who will have pity on you, O Jerusalem, and who will bemoan you? Who will turn aside to ask how you are doing? So there's not going to be anyone left in the land to even pity the people that have died. There's no one who will moan and mourn over the dead. There's no one who will go, come to comfort. Because truly it was the Lord and only the Lord who would comfort Jerusalem. And he said, this is their judgment. Verse 6, he says, you have forsaken me, says the Lord. You have gone backward. You know, for us as believers, sometimes we have the wrong attitude and mindset that the Lord's turned his back on us. If there is any separation or perhaps the Lord's face is turned away from us, it's not because of him. It's because of us. It's because we've turned our backs on him. The responsibility is in us. The Lord's grace, compassion, kindness, favor is always there before us if we're repentant, if we choose to continue in our relationship with him. But when we turn our backs on him, that relationship is broken. And that's what happened here with Judah and Jerusalem. You've forsaken me, says the Lord. You've gone backward. They had plenty of opportunity to move forward. The Lord had given them the prophets. The Lord had given them these kings, these reforms. He had given, restored to them the word of God there recently. And yet, rather than moving forward, they went back. They kept going back. And he says, therefore, I'll stretch out my hand against you and destroy you. The Lord says, I'm weary of relenting. 
and I will winnow them with a winnowing fan in the gates of the land. Winnowing is is a fan. It would be uh, kind of like a rake like we have today, but made out of um, uh, reeds or rushes or, or sticks. And, and they would have their pile of wheat that was harvested and they would put it on the threshing floor and they would wait for a windy day and they would take their winnowing fan and they would scoop it into the pile and toss the wheat up into the air and as it goes into the air all the chaff would be blown off by the wind and the wheat the chaff would be scattered and just the wheat would fall back to the ground and the Lord says I'm going to do this to you I'm going to scatter you I will winnow them with a winnowing fan in the gates of the land I will bereave them of children. I will destroy my people. Even there, there's the Lord's heart. They're still his people. But he says, since they do not return from their ways. He says, the widows will be increased to me more than the sand of the seas. Uh, as we continue to look at Jeremiah, we see that the people do not heed Jeremiah's call to... Uh, basically bow down under the judgment of the Lord to not resist Babylon, to go into captivity and to accept the consequences of their sin, to take their lumps, so to speak. Rather, they would resist and they would send out their men in battle against the Babylonians and they would be killed. And that's what Jeremiah says, their widows will be increased to me more than the sands of the seas, or what the Lord says. I will bring against them, against the mother of the young men, a plunderer at noonday. Meaning when their life is still fresh and young. I will cause anguish and terror to fall on them suddenly. She languishes who is born seven. A woman who had born seven would be considered to have her, her future life as she grows old completely taken care of. She has children to care for her. She has a house that's full. It's that idea of completion and fullness. But it says, even the, the woman who has a household full of sons, she's born seven, says she has breathed her last. Her son has gone down while it was yet day. She has been ashamed and confounded. And the remnant of them I will deliver to the sword before their enemies, says the Lord. There, there will be this utter destruction in the land, and it's going to be terrible. The Lord is calling out, to, is, to Judah and to Jerusalem, saying this is the judgment that's coming. And Jeremiah is the messenger. And uh, as the messenger, you know, this is his people. We, we can't remove the, the person from the scriptures as we look at these stories, as we look at these things, what we're reading in the scriptures. Jeremiah, he was a, 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 a righteous prophet. The Lord filled him with his spirit, and he wrote all these things that we have in here, and the Lord used him mightily, but he was still a man. And that's what we see here. Jeremiah, in hearing of these things, he says, Woe is me, my mother, that you have borne me, a man of strife and a man of contention to the whole earth. Here he says, it'd be better if I wouldn't have been born. We see that later on in chapter 20 where he calls out a, a similar thing. He says, woe is me that you've borne me. Uh, Jeremiah says, I've become a man of strife and a man of contention to the whole earth. He's discouraged. He recognizes that no one would listen or stand to him or stand with him. The Lord had called him to follow to be obedient to him, to call out these messages. Remember in, in the first part of Jeremiah, he says, I'm going to make you a bronze wall, a, a, a wall of judgment to Israel, that he would, he would be called to stand and to speak the judgment of the Lord out. And rather than listening to him, uh, he was the thorn in the side of every person there. And that's what he says. He's kind of using some hyperbole here to the, that it's to the whole earth. But for him, that's what he's seen. I'm, I'm a man of strife and of contention. Uh, men don't even want to deal with me uh, when it comes to money. I haven't even done anything to men for them to, to hate me, he says. I've neither lent for interest nor have men lent to me for interest. Every one of them curses me. Jeremiah was looking at his calling and saying, I'm not successful. He was discouraged. He was looking at, at his message, calling them to repent, and the Lord saying, they're not going to repent. 
And he's seeing it. He's seeing that the children of Judah and Jerusalem were not going to repent. And he's, he's in essence saying, what's the point? It'd be re- it would be better if I hadn't even been called by the Lord. Even though, remember, in Jeremiah, in the first part of Jeremiah, the Lord says, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. The Lord called him from the very beginning. And yet here, Jeremiah is despairing, saying, it's better for me if I hadn't been known by the Lord in my mother's womb. It would be better if I had never been born. As we look at Jeremiah, we see that his cry is not unfounded. His discouragement is not without cause. His family conspired against him. We read that earlier. The people of his hometown of Anathoth told him, keep quiet or we'll kill you. Later on, we see a man named Pashur who strikes him and then puts him in stocks. Stocks are like, remember the old cartoons, you'd see the wooden blocks where just your head and your hands would hang out and be locked over and you'd be left there in the village square. They put him in stocks. After that, he was put into prison in the king's palace. Later, he was removed from the prison and then beaten by the leaders of the people and thrown into a dungeon. And even later, he was taken out of that dungeon and thrown into another in Jeremiah 38, where he's thrown into this deep pit where there's no water, but the bottom's filled with mire. And it says, so uh, Jeremiah sunk into the mire. Eventually, he would be released from that dungeon, uh, but even then, after that, he was still kept in prison in the court of the prison. And, and afterwards, he would even be dragged off to Egypt and eventually killed. Jeremiah, he, he truly had become a man of strife and contention to his people, and he was suffering because of it. Yet, the Lord still called him to stand. It's the true call of God on the men and women who are called by his name to stand in suffering and persecution, in contention, and in strife. We see that throughout the scriptures. In Amos 5.10, it says, They hate the one who rebukes in the gate, and they abhor the one who speaks uprightly. Isaiah 59.15, it says, So truth fails, and even he who departs from evil makes himself a prey. So even those who would turn and and go after the call of repentance in in, uh, Isaiah's day, they were just making themselves vulnerable to be uh, persecuted and killed, making themselves prey. We see that in the New Testament. Paul, even as he's speaking to the church of Galatians, he says, Have I therefore become your enemy because I tell you the truth? We see this call upon the hearts and lives of people that are called by God's name, to stand for him in truth. And that truth is not popular. And that truth is one that causes strife and contention. And you guys know it, Matthew 10, Jesus himself promises to his disciples, brother will deliver up brother to death, and a father is his child, and children will rise up against parents and cause them to be put to death, and you will be hated by all for my name's sake. Jesus promises that to his disciples. Luke 6, 22, he promises when, not if, they'll suffer persecution. He says, blessed are you when men hate you and when they exclude you and revile you and cast out your name as evil for the Son of Man's sake. But God demands that his people stand for him and stand in the gap. You guys remember the verses in Ezekiel 22 says, This is the Lord speaking. It says, So I sought for a man among them who would make a wall and stand in the gap before me on behalf of the land that I should not destroy it, but I found no one. The Lord has called judgment upon the earth that we're in. And the world is fallen. We have the sin, we have sin, we have Satan, we have the flesh, we have the world working against the church and against the Lord and against his people. And he's called us to be a wall and to stand in the gap before him on behalf of those appointments like I was talking about earlier in our lives, on behalf of the people that we have in our lives to stand up for truth despite and when these things happen, when men hate us, when we're excluded, when we're reviled, when we're cast out. You guys, I just read just this last week 
in the state of Minnesota, they're trying to push a bill that would require all teachers to sign off in agreement with that they support critical race theory, um, the LGBTQIA plus agenda, uh, and uh, all of these other uh, woke radical movements teaching um, perverted pornographic sex ed in school, uh, the idea of racial equity, uh, and all of these wicked and evil things that are anti-Christian, anti-God. And if a teacher will not sign off on those things, they lose their teaching license. In essence, banning any Christian who's a biblical Christian from teaching in a public school in the entire state of Minnesota. Uh, and it it's, won't affect just Christians, of course, anybody who would take a stand against that, but especially Christians. You guys, we're, we, we see uh, doctors in Canada who are being told that they have to provide uh, 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 assisted suicide. We see even now, I just read as well that in the international health codes, I don't even know what they're all called, doctors are now being required in order to be paid for, their, for Medicare to mark down anyone who is unvaccinated and put a specific code in there specifically for COVID-19 vaccine. You know, that's not necessarily taking a stand for Christ unless that's your conviction that the Lord's laid on your heart. However, those sorts of things are only going to increase in the world in which we live. And we will continuously see rights, liberties, freedoms go away, especially for people who believe and take a stand on the word of God. Because the world has hated Jesus from the very beginning. And if we follow him and love him and walk with him, then like he says, they'll hate us for his sake. And we need to be prepared to take that stand. Now, some of us, maybe we are suffering certain things. I don't know if there's anyone here in the room who, who the Lord laid on your hearts not to take the COVID-19 vaccine because of its use of uh, aborted fetal cells or whatever, which in my uh, conviction goes against what I what the Lord has laid for in for me to take a stand on in with him and I was willing if need be to take a stand in my workplace if they said the vaccine is mandatory uh, and uh, I don't know if any of you have lost your jobs but I'm certain there are others I know of many people who who had to take a stand on those things we've seen uh in, it's weird, it's in Minnesota, which is my old home state, but in the Mall of America, a man walked into there wearing a shirt that said, Jesus is the only way, and had coexist crossed out on his back. He was kicked out of the mall. It's a shopping mall in the Mall of America there. We, we see all of these things increasing, you guys, but it's not just that. We have all the spiritual attacks. We have... Uh, the the seduction like Manasseh of the world that's trying to pull our children away from walking with the Lord, from biblical truth. We have uh, the wedge uh, of uh, sexual sin in pornography and lust that Satan is trying to drive in the wedge, drive a wedge in our marriages and in our homes. We have all of these things that we are called to as Christians to take a stand, to say the Lord has judged these things on the cross as being evil, as sin. He paid the price for those of us who've placed our faith in him and, and to take a stand on those things in our own homes, to take a stand for what the Lord has called us to be faithful to him in. And it's not going to be easy Francis Schaeffer, he wrote this. He says, nobody who is fighting the battle in our own generation, this is in the 70s that he wrote this, no one who is fighting the battle in our own generation can float on a beauty rest mattress. If you love God and love men and have compassion for them, you will pay a price psychologically. So many people seem to think that if the Holy Spirit is working, then the work is easy. Don't believe it. 
As the Holy Spirit works, a man is consumed. This is the record of the revivals. It is the record of those places in which God has really done something. It is not easy. It's not easy. Jeremiah was discouraged, but the Lord had a message for him to continue to preach. Verse 11, he says, Surely it will be well with your remnant. Here's that little bit of glimmer of hope the Lord gives. It's not going to be well with them. There's judgment, but with the remnant, what will come afterwards, there will be good. He says, even I'll cause the enemy to intercede with you in the time of adversity and in the time of affliction. But then he says, can anyone break iron, the northern iron, speaking of Babylon, and the bronze, speaking of Jeremiah, can anyone break those things? Excuse me. Your wealth and your treasures I will give as plunder without price because of all your sins throughout your territories. And I will make you cross over with your enemies into a land which you do not know. For a fire is kindled in my anger which shall burn upon you. That was Jeremiah's message. Because of all your sins, a fire is kindled. That was his message. Jeremiah, then he continues to kind of cry out to the Lord here in verse 15. It says, O Lord, you know, remember me. And visit me and take vengeance for me on my persecutors. In your enduring patience, do not take me away. Know that for your sake I have suffered rebuke. And he did. He says, your words were found and I ate them. And your word was to me the joy and rejoicing of my heart. For I am called by your name, O Lord God of hosts. There was encouragement. Jeremiah here, though, as he's calling out these things... He's remembering back and he's he's in one sense kind of bargaining or pleading with the Lord. Lord, you know me. Remember me. Visit me. You've left me is what he's saying. You're, You're allowing persecution and not taking vengeance on my persecutors. In your enduring patience, don't take me away. You've said that we're going to be taken away and me included. And he's praying that the Lord would not do that. He's saying, Lord, see, I I've. For your sake, I've suffered rebuke. Said, I've loved your word. Your words were found and I ate them and your word was to me the joy and rejoicing of my heart. I'm called by your name, Lord, O Lord God of hosts. He's in one sense doing kind of like what Job did before the Lord. where He's saying, Lord, what have I done before you to deserve this? Says, I did not sit in the assembly of the mockers, nor did I rejoice. I sat alone because of your hand, for you have filled me with indignation. And here now in verse 18, Jeremiah moves beyond just the complaint that the Lord is patiently listening to, to where he then calls out against the Lord's faithfulness. He says, why is my pain perpetual and my wound incurable, which refuses to be healed? says, will you surely be to me like an unreliable stream as waters that fail? says, Lord, you said you're going to be a fountain of living waters. And yet to me, you're, you're unfaithful. You're something I can't trust. The Lord does not look down upon us in our discouragement or our depression or our struggling with things. The Lord listens to us. We see that all throughout the Psalms. David cried out to the Lord in depression, in in difficulty. We see that throughout the scriptures, people calling out. Paul himself pleading with the Lord for that thorn in his side to be removed from him. We see that, uh, you know, even in, in more modern times, Charles Spurgeon, he was known as the Prince of Preachers, and he constantly struggled with depression and discouragement. I know there have been many Wednesday nights that I've been up here and taught and then gone home being discouraged before the Lord. Uh, and there, there are many things as you walk with the Lord where there is discouragement, there's depression, there's these things. But where there's, when there's the crossing of the line, it's when we call into question God's character and who he is. Now, Jeremiah, who wasn't judge the Lord didn't strike him down because of what he said it wasn't a bolt of lightning that came and struck him dead as he said these things but the Lord reassured him 
and he showed him grace. Verse 19, he says, Therefore, thus says the Lord, if you return, then I will bring you back. He says, repent of that. You shall stand before me if you take out the precious from the vile. The precious were all those things where he, he, Jeremiah had been faithful before the Lord, where he calls out like all of us should call out and say, your words were found and I ate them and your word was to me the joy and rejoice in my heart for I'm called by your name, O Lord God of hosts. He had, the Lord has enduring patience. He knows us. He remembers us. All of those things are precious. But then when we call into question the Lord's character, and call him faithless, that's the vile. It says, if you take out the precious from the vile, then you'll be as my mouth. The Lord says, if you repent of that attitude of that heart, then I'll restore you and you can continue to serve me and follow me. You shall be as my mouth. That's what the Lord calls for us. Jeremiah would need to be strong. The Babylonians would be that northern iron that we looked at. But he was to be the bronze wall. It was the rock and the hard place for the people. They were going to be crushed between the two because of their unrepentance. Again, another quote from Francis Schaeffer. He says, Christianity is not a modern success story. It's to be preached with love and tears into the teeth of men. Preached without compromise, without regard to the world's concept of success. If there seemed to be no results, remember that Jeremiah did not see the results in his day. They came later. If there seemed to be no results, it does not change God's imperative. It's simply up to you and to me to go on, go on, go on, whether we see the results or whether we don't go on. That's what we're called to as Christians. And the Lord calls that for Jeremiah, says, go on, return to me. Take out the vial, the precious from the vial, and you'll continue to be my mouth, my spokesperson. He says, let the people who will return to you, but you must not return to them. Don't compromise, the Lord's telling Jeremiah. Continue on. And verse 20, he, he uh, restates this promise to him, and I will make you to this people, a fortified bronze wall. And then he gives this promise, and they will fight against you, but they shall not prevail against you, for I am with you to save you and deliver you. The Lord says, Jeremiah, I haven't left you. Jeremiah, I am still with you. Jeremiah, you're suffering, but I'm going to make you a fortified bronze wall. They will fight against you, but they're not going to prevail. I'm with you to save you and deliver you says the Lord. I will deliver you from the hand of the wicked and I will redeem you from the grip of the terrible. You know, for Jeremiah, he had this lapse of faith here in the Lord. And who can blame him? He, he sees all of these things going on. He sees no fruit of his ministry. He's called the weeping prophet with a reason, for a reason. Um, and we see that with him. But we see also in this cry to the Lord, we see even in Jeremiah's complaint to him, the, the, the strength that, the source of his strength that he could have is remembering the Lord, is continuing to persevere and endure with him, to have the Lord's words as the joy and rejoicing of his heart. If he continued to walk in those things, and return to the Lord in those things, then the Lord would strengthen him and give him the endurance. And it's the same with us. If we continue in the word of the Lord, we have strength. If we're obedient to him, we have strength. We can have the opposition, the persecution, the struggles, the strife. We can have those things. But if we abide in his word, we're his disciples. Indeed, we're walking with him. We're continuing to be with him. Psalm 119 has many, uh, we don't have time to go through it, although I did try on a Sunday morning one time to get all the way through Psalm 119. It didn't work. But um, uh, I'll read four different verses. They're scattered around there. It's 97, 113, 119, and 163. But it says, Oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation all the day. He says, I hate the double-minded, but I love your law. 
You put away all the wicked of the earth like dross. Therefore, I love your testimonies. I hate and abhor lying, but I love your law. In Revelation 3.8, Jesus, as he's talking to the church in Philadelphia, he says uh, of them, you have a little strength. What was the key to their little strength? You've kept my word and have not denied my name. That was the key to their strength. That's the key for us is to keep his word, to not deny his name. In fact, the Lord says that he values his word above his name. We as Christians, we have life in our hands here. Uh, I've encouraged people beforehand, and, and I encourage you at some point too, to go and read the history of how we got our English Bible, if you don't know it. It's an amazing story. Um, and it's a, truly an amazing work of God for us as modern-day American English-speaking Christians to be able to have access to God's Word like we do. And He's given it to us to know Him by and to live by and to have the answers that we need for all of our lives, for all of the things that we come up against. And uh, we as Christians, need to have his word uh, hidden in our hearts. We need to put it up uh, above anything else that we hear. It's the truth by which we test everything. And if we don't spend time in the word of God, if we're not applying his word to our heart and our lives, then we're casting off one of the most precious things that the Lord has given to us. And, and we're really... Uh, rejecting the Lord for the life that he's given to us to live faithful lives to him. If we're not spending time in his word, if we're not applying it, if we don't have a high value on God's word. I don't understand Christians who don't value God's word very highly because um, it just goes against what <laughs> to be the Lord's disciple. It truly is a, a false teaching of our day that the Word of God is more of just an old book of nice sayings, and, and we love the Sermon on the Mount that Jesus spoke, and, but everything else is just kind of either too old or outdated. Um, but every Word of God is living and active, and, the, and it's... Uh, meant for each of us to hold and hide in our hearts. And we need to be faithful to the Lord in his word. It will cause us to be separate and holy to him. And, it, and if we're taking a stand upon it, we're going to experience opposition. Luke 21, 15, it says, I will give you a mouth and wisdom which all your adversaries will not be able to contradict or resist. You will be betrayed even by parents and brothers, relatives and friends, and they will put some of you to death, and you will be hated by all for my name's sake. But not a hair of your head shall be lost by your patience. Possess your souls. We're called to be patient and trusting in the word of the Lord. And if we're sticking to his word, then we have that mouth and wisdom which anyone speaking against us will not be able to contradict or resist because it's not our words, it's God's word. It's his truth. If we're standing upon what he says, it's his truth. And we're that bronze wall that cannot be uh, overcome and prevailed against. Jeremiah, he was called to repent, to take out the precious and, uh, from the vile and to return to the Lord and to be that mouth that would continue to speak and to be that bronze wall. Um, and we see that promise, I will deliver you from the hand of the wicked, and I will redeem you from the grip of the terrible that the Lord gave to Jeremiah. But we see, of course, chapter 16, we don't have time to go through all of it. I'd encourage you guys to read it. But chapter 16 is a difficult thing. We see Jeremiah, he's complaining to the Lord. He's discouraged now. Remember earlier, uh, the Lord... In, uh, to Jeremiah's complaint against him earlier, uh, he said, if you get tired running with the footmen, how are you going to do against the horses? Jeremiah was going to start running with the horses here. And, and that's what we begin to see here. 
the Lord tells Jeremiah he can't take a wife. He can't have sons or daughters because of what's going to come upon the land. It was both uh, to be a, a sign of separation for Jeremiah, but more importantly, to be an illustration to the people of Israel about the mourning and how grave and terrible the times were going to be for them. He wasn't even supposed to go uh, to a funeral service for someone who died. He wasn't supposed to lament or bemoan over them because there wasn't supposed to be any form of trying to comfort people who are mourning. He says, because I've taken away my peace from this people. This is verse five, taken away my loving kindness and mercies. He says, you shouldn't go and break bread. You shouldn't drink for them in remembrance of them. He says, I'm going to cause to cease from this place, verse 9, before your eyes and in your days, the voice of mirth and the voice of gladness, the voice of the bridegroom and the voice of the bride. And almost in, in, in uh, a comical way, the people say, uh, why has the Lord pronounced all this great disaster against us in verse 10? What's our iniquity or what is our sin that we've committed against the Lord our God? See, they didn't even get it. They continue to question, why, why is this happening? And the Lord tells Jeremiah, you shall say to them, verse 11, because your fathers have forsaken me. So there is the background there, says the Lord. They have walked after other gods and have served them and worshiped them and have forsaken me and not kept my law. So there was the, the fathers who did that. But just so they didn't rest back and say, well, it's all their fault. Why are we suffering? He says, verse 12, and you have done worse than your fathers. For behold, each one follows the dictates of his own evil heart so that no one listens to me. You know, that's the cry of our age. Follow your heart. Believe in yourself. Right? That's, we've been hearing that for decades now. That we're to trust our hearts. Let our, let, let our hearts be our guides to do all of these things. And, and yet when we do that, you get in the place that Judah and Jerusalem were each one following the dictates of his own evil heart. And when you do that, you're not listening to the Lord. You can't hear from him when you're following your heart. And he says, therefore, I'll cast you out of this land into a land that you don't know. There's going to be judgment. Now, um, we're at the end, so we're going to finish up here. Uh, but read verses 14 on down to the end, and we see a beautiful promise of restoration to where the Lord says, uh, I will bring you back into this land. We see that throughout the prophets that were um, prophesying judgment and destruction against Jerusalem, that the Lord would judge them for a time, but he would bring them back. And when he brings them back, he says it will be greater than when he brought them out of the Exodus, out of Egypt in the Exodus. But there would be judgment in this generation. The Lord says, and then later on, we see a prophecy that in the uh, dealing with Judah and Jerusalem's sin and and dealing in judgment on his people, the Lord would begin to make a way for the Gentiles to come into salvation and to be grafted in. It's just like what Alan Shore a few weeks ago was sharing with us from uh, in Romans 9, 10, and 11 talks about in this portion of scripture. If you look at it, if the Lord had not dealt with the people's sin in Judah and Jerusalem, they would have continued on. There would be no promised land for them to continue in. There would be no uh, uh, uh being sanctified and set apart from worship of idols as we see the children of Israel coming back into the land um, and not uh, going after idols any longer after Babylon, uh, after being there. They're, they're sent to the land of, of idols and idol worship and the worship of demon gods. And that, in essence, cures them from idolatry when they come back. But if the Lord had not done all of those things, we see, then as they come back to the land, and ultimately as we see uh, the Lord doing and restoring the nation of Israel even future, further in the future, we see the Lord making a way for the Gentiles to come in and inherit the blessings that he has for Jerusalem and for his people, for the Jews is opened up for us as Gentile believers. Turn to 1 Peter chapter 3.
and we'll finish up there. First Peter chapter three, verse 14. Peter writes, but even if you should suffer for righteousness sake, you are blessed. And then he quotes, and do not be afraid of their threats, nor be troubled, but sanctify the Lord God in your hearts. And always be ready to give a defense to everyone who asks you a reason for the hope that is in you with meekness and fear, having a good conscience, that when they defame you as evildoers, those who revile your good conduct in Christ may be ashamed. For it is better, if it is the will of God, to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive by the Spirit. And then he goes on. But that's the message for us, what Jeremiah was told and what we're told. We're going to suffer for righteousness sake. And we're to count it ourselves blessed if we do, because we're suffering, not because of something bad that we did, but because we're being faithful to the Lord. It's a sign of our faithfulness to him if we suffer and are persecuted for those things. And we don't have to have fear. And that's what he says. Do not be afraid of their threats. Don't be troubled. And this is how we stand in that, in that attitude. Verse 15, sanctify, set him apart. The Lord God in your hearts. Don't get to that place where you call into question the Lord's character, where you despair in your relationship with him. And you say, the Lord's abandoned me. He, I can't trust him any longer. But set him, set him apart. Trust in his faithfulness. Trust in his righteousness. Trust in his kindness and his love for us. And when he's sanctified in, his, in our hearts, then we can be always ready to give a defense to everyone who asks us. And we can have a hope that's in us such that we are asked by these people. Why, why do you have hope? You're suffering. You're being persecuted. Why do you have hope? And we have an answer with meekness and fear that it's because the world has hated Jesus, and we're following him, and he's promised that if we're faithful to him, we're going to suffer like he has suffered. And we can have a good conduct before him, before the Lord, and before the people that gives that reason for hope to point them to him. We see Christ has suffered for us, and he's our example. We're called to suffer for him. But we need to sanctify him in our hearts. We need to be ready. We need to know his word, have it hidden in our hearts. We need to continue to walk with him and trust his, his faithfulness. We live in a culture and a society that is more and more, and really honestly always has been, against his people. And if we don't have those things in place, we're going to be kind of knocked over. You know, that bronze wall in those days, they built their walls out of clay and rocks and stone and all these things. Well, one of the, the uh, tools of warfare that uh, armies had developed in fighting against walled and fortified cities is they would tunnel under them. They would undermine the foundations of those walls to where they would collapse in on themselves. Then they would have an open path to the city. But if you have your trust in the Lord, like Jeremiah he can make us a bronze wall that even though it may, they may try to get underneath that wall, it will stand and not collapse. Can't be prevailed against. Battering rams can't take it down. And it's not because of our strength. It's not because of our faithfulness, but it's because we're trusting in the Lord. That's why. And because he is the one who cannot be moved. And so if we're in him, we will not be moved. And that's what we're called to. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, thank you for your word. Lord, thank you for just the encouragement, Lord, to see Jeremiah, to see him struggle, to have discouragement, Lord, uh, that he was a real person. It gives testimony to the fact that your word is true. If these were some hero myths, then they wouldn't put all the shortcomings and failings of the people in these things. They would only be doing good and wonderful, brave things, Lord. And yet we see they're just men. 
men that you've called, women who that you've called to be faithful to you, and they have struggles. Um, they deal with things just like we deal with them, Lord. And I pray that we would learn from their lessons, learn from these things, Lord, that we would take a stand. Lord, I pray that in our homes we would take a stand for you with our children. If we have teenagers or, or young adults living in our homes that are messing around with things that they shouldn't mess around with, that we would take a stand in love, in grace, but also take a stand on your word, saying these things are sin. If you continue in them, you're going to go to hell. If you don't place your faith in Christ, that we would take a stand on these things in our culture, in our society, in our workplaces, Lord. That we would be faithful people, willing to take the reviling, the hatred, the persecution, the exclusion, all of those things. If we're standing in righteousness on your truth, on your word, on your grace, Lord. And I pray that you would strengthen your people. We ask this in your name. Amen. Amen. All right.